Well, good morning. Please turn to, in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8. We're in a series through the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Old Testament, and that has brought us to chapter 8. And while you're finding it, I'll just go ahead and kind of give you the title of the sermon and hopefully help you understand where I'm going this morning. The title of the sermon is God's Blessing or God's Wrath. God's Blessing or God's Wrath. The Bible teaches that every single one of us is either under God's blessing, and I'll explain more what that means, but we could say salvation. Every single one of us is either under God's salvation or we are under God's wrath. There's no middle ground, so each one of us needs to ask ourselves, where am I? Another way of asking that is, if I were to die today, will I experience the blessing of God's salvation, or will I experience the wrath of his eternal punishment? So you can tell, I mean, these are obviously weighty questions, aren't they? but very important questions. Do I currently have every spiritual blessing in Christ? Another way to ask the question. Am I currently experiencing every spiritual blessing? Do I possess every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus because of my union with Christ Jesus? Or as the end of John 3 says, does the wrath of God still remain on me? Am I headed for his eternal wrath? These are the questions we want to consider as we, as we study Joshua chapter 8 today. Now, last week in Joshua chapter 7, if you'll recall, Israel, the nation of Israel, suffered an unexpected defeat at the hands of the city of Ai. And God told Joshua why that defeat had come about, that, that it was because Israel had sinned. They had kept some of the plunder from Jericho, the plunder that was all supposed to be devoted to the Lord for destruction. One man in particular named Achan had kept some of that plunder for himself. And in doing so, Israel was guilty. They had stolen from God and forsaken their covenant with God. And so last week we saw God told Joshua that unless they dealt with this sin then Israel themselves would be devoted to destruction. In other words, God would be against Israel. He would no longer uh, go with them and and deliver the nations into their hands. And they they got a taste of that by their defeat at Ai. Here God had delivered the mighty city of Jericho to them in in chapter 6, but then in chapter 7, the small town of Ai actually defeated them because of this sin. And so, again, in his mercy, God told Joshua what, need, they need, what needed to be done to deal with this sin. And Joshua obeyed. When God revealed that Achan had stolen the devoted things, Joshua and all Israel devoted Achan and all that belonged to him to destruction as the Lord commanded. So that was all last week. But that brings us right here to where we are at the beginning of chapter 8. And so think, put yourself in the, in the sandals of Joshua, in the sandals of the Israelites as, as we come into chapter 8. The question that must have haunted Joshua and all of Israel was this. 
Is God still angry with us? We saw a taste of that anger in our first battle with Ai. Is God still angry with us? Has God forgiven us? Will God once again go with us and fight for us? And that leads us to our first heading today. If you're taking notes, I have just four simple headings that will kind of walk us through chapter 8. And the first one is this. Renewal of God's blessing. Renewal of God's blessing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8, Joshua 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. (laughs) Think of how encouraging those words must have been to Joshua, right? To hear, do not fear. (laughs) The Lord is telling Joshua, don't be afraid, Joshua. You guys have purged the sin from among you, so my anger is no longer burning against you. Don't be dismayed. Joshua, I will be with you. I am once again fighting for Israel. In other words, things are back on track. Move forward with the conquest. Go up to Ai. I have given Ai into your hand. By the way, you see that there? Um, He says, see, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people in the city and all his land. Given into your hand. Where have we heard that expression before? Sound familiar? Back in chapter 6, that's what he said about Jericho. Remember? He said, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. Remember we talked about, wow, they hadn't even attacked yet, or they hadn't even started marching yet, and and he's already said it like it's a completed event. Past tense, I have given Jericho into your hand. Now he's saying the same thing about Ai. In other words, the victory is so sure that God once again can use the past tense. It's a done deal. I've already given Ai into your hand just like I had, have done previously with Jericho. So he's saying, you guys are not going to be defeated again at Ai. And in verse 2, the Lord makes this comparison between Jericho's victory and what would happen at Ai. He makes it explicit. Look at verse 2. He says, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So again, the Lord has given Ai into Israel's hand. He's saying Israel is going to thoroughly defeat Ai this time. So you see, God once again is blessing Israel. And notice, this time the Lord says, Israel, you may keep the spoil, the livestock from Ai as plunder for yourselves. you see how tragic Achan's sin was again? (laughs) If only Achan would have waited for the Lord. Remember? God had made, made it so clear that all of Jericho was to be destroyed. All of Jericho was to be devoted to destruction as a as an offering to the Lord, as a first fruits to the Lord. But but remember, God is not stingy with his people. If Achan had obeyed, Back there in Jer- with Jericho, then he and his family would, would, would still be alive. And now, as they go into Ai, they would have enjoyed the plunder. So again, I, I made this point last week. I won't spend long on it. But it reminds us of, of Satan's tactics, right? And what we saw in the Garden of Eden, where Satan tries to get 
God's people to think that God is holding something back, something good from them. That God, that's, what he tried, that's what Satan did with Eve, right? Oh, God's keeping this from you. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's given you every tree. I mean, Satan doesn't emphasize that part. He's given you every tree but this one. But no, God's keeping that something good from you. He doesn't want you to eat of that tree. Because it's, it'll be good and it'll bring you pleasure. And God's stingy. That's what Satan says. And that's, that's what the world, that's how the devil still tempts God's people. With all kinds of sin, right? No, you should live life with no boundaries. You know, don't let anybody put a cap on your pleasure. You know, God's just a, a spoil sport. God's just trying to keep something good from you. No. Remember, sin promises pleasure, and it, it maybe does bring pleasure for a season, fleeting pleasure, but then it leads to all kinds of pain and perversion and destruction. If we do things God's way and in God's timing, we'll enjoy blessings and and pleasure without guilt. (laughs) But what I want us to see here again in Joshua 8 is God is once again blessing Israel. Notice God not only promises victory over Ai, but and, and not only does he say, okay, you guys are going to have victory, you can even keep the plunder for yourselves, but, but then God also tells Joshua how to take the city at the end of verse 2, lay an ambush against the city behind it. So God has assured Joshua that things are back on track, promised victory, and he's telling Joshua, move forward and take the city. Then in verses 3 and following, Joshua relays the Lord's commands and the Lord's promise to the army of Israel. Look at verse 3. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 fighting men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it, just like God had told them. Right? Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall arise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according, you shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, verse 9, and they went to the place of ambush and lay behind Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Okay, so he lays out the, the plans in detail there. He gives, Joshua gives the army the same assurance that he received from God. Verse 7, you see that? For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Right? He's assuring the people, just like God assured him. The Lord is with you. The Lord is still their God. Achan's sin was a setback, but that's been taken care of. God has promised to be with you. He's promised victory over Ai. And then he gave the detailed instructions about the plan of attack. 30,000 men will lie in ambush behind the city. Joshua and the rest of the army are going to pretend to attack the city just like they did in chapter 7, right? And just like they did in chapter 7, they're going to turn around and flee from the, the army of Ai. And so the army is going to be like, ha ha, you know, these, these foolish Israelites, we got them again. And so the army of Ai is going to come out and chase after the Joshua and the army of Israel that's fleeing and thereby leave the whole city vulnerable. And so the men who were waiting in ambush 
are going to then just be able to, it's going to be open season, easy, easy pickings to come in and, and take over the city and even set it on fire as commanded. Then Ai's army that was pursuing the Israelites who were pretending to flee are gonna, is going to see the city on fire. They're going to be like, oh no, turn back and try to <laughs> you know, do something about the city, their city that's on fire. And then they're going to be surrounded because the people who laid ambush and set the city on fire are going to come out and attack them. The Israelites who were fleeing are going to you know, do an about face and attack them. And they got them. Okay? So, fairly straightforward. The plan is in place. And so then they carry it out the next day in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. Let me just pause here and say that there, it is a little confusing um, that here that he would say the number of 5,000 when earlier in verse 3 it said there would be 30,000 men waiting in, in ambush. So... Um, we're not exactly sure why this discrepancy. One explanation is maybe there were two distinct units in ambush. You know, maybe the ambush kind of took place in two parts, right? Sometimes scripture is that way where it kind of gives you an overview. And then then at, uh, as the unfolding of it happens, it gives more details, more layers to it. So maybe these are two distinct units um, assigned to different aspects of the ambush. But it doesn't, doesn't really concern me that much, right? They're, they're carrying out the Lord's plans here. Verse 13, so they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. Verse 14, and as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know, he being the king of Ai, did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city, were, in other words, the, the army of Ai, were called together to pursue them as they pursued. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. So you see, the plan is working to perfection, right? Which is no big surprise, because whose plan was it? It was the Lord's plan, right? <laughs> so of course it works. The army of Ai has been lured out of the city, again, leaving it vulnerable. So the Lord tells Joshua to stretch out his javelin toward Ai. This signals the Israel's waiting in ambush to go attack the city. And it, it symbolizes what God has been saying, the fact that the Lord has given the city of Ai into Joshua's heading, or sorry, Joshua's hand, which leads us then to our second heading, display of God's curse. We've seen the renewal of God's blessing. God is once again blessing Israel. And now as we see this unfold, we're reminded this is an example of God's curse of judgment on the people of Ai. Really, it's, it, both things are happening simultaneously, right? Ai's defeat is the Lord blessing Israel, but at the same time, it's also the wicked Canaanites of Ai experiencing the curse of God's wrath. Look at verse 19. 
And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, they... Then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai, and the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side. The people of Ai are surrounded, right? The army is. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped, but the king of Ai they took alive, he'll come up later, and brought him near to Joshua. Verse 24, when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword and all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. Now again, we've, we've talked about this a couple of times, but I just want to mention it again, especially if this is your first time with us in, in our series on Joshua. We, we've seen in God's word how in Genesis, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, it describes the gross sins of the Canaanites People like the inhabitants of Ai. It goes into detail about, you know, they were, they were wicked, they were idolaters, they, perverted, um, they were perverted sexually, and, and they, they sacrificed even their kids to their false gods. So they are wicked, idolatrous people. God has been patient with them. Of course, God, we were, are reminded of what Romans 1 teaches, that the, all of creation testifies to there's one true God. They'd heard word of God's dealings with Israel. They, they, had, they had information that could have caused them to turn and, and trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel, like Rahab did. But they had not. And so God's been patient, and after hundred years, hundreds of years of their rebellion, the Canaanites had finally provoked the Lord to judgment. And in this unique time in history, God carried out his judgment against the wicked Canaanites through the army of Israel. All right, we talked about that. This was a unique time in history. He's not doing that now. Our battle is a spiritual battle. But this is, I say all that to say, again, this is God's wrath. This is God's judgment being poured out in a physical way on sinners. And again, unlike Rahab, the people of Ai did not forsake their wickedness. They did not plead for God's mercy. Rather, in their hardened rebellion, they fought against God to the end. Therefore, they are experiencing the curse of God's judgment. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the curse of God's judgment upon them. And verse 29 hones in on this with the king of Ai. Look at verse 29 with me. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. He, I, I presume he'd already been killed at this point, right? And I'll uh, tell you why in just a second. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Now, why are they doing that, you know? What is, what is Israel? I mean, are they... Are they um, are they themselves getting kind of wicked here or something? Are they going over the top with this? No. They, under their covenant, they're, they're carrying out what God's law had said. 
if you want to write this down or even turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And this is going to be an important piece for us to understand because this is going to point us to Christ. And I'll, I'll get to that later in the sermon. Let me read for you Deuteronomy 21, 22. This is God's law. This is God instructing this, second, this generation of Israelites for, when, for life in the promised land. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. In other words, under the Mosaic law, people who were executed for their sins were, at times at least, to be hung on a tree. Why? As a symbol, as a public symbol of God's rejection. I'm using the word curse a lot today, and when I use that, I'm not talking about a four-letter word, right? You know, foul language. I'm not talking about that. Curse means God's rejection, God rejecting that person in judgment. And so, again, when a person had sinned, when they rebelled against God, and and again, it led to their, their execution under God's law, it was, a, it was like a public display, a public teaching tool. Hey, this person is being reject, rejected by God. And so this executed king of Ai hung on the tree until sunset where he was buried then under a great heap of stones to serve as a lasting reminder to all of God, to all people of God's judgment against sin. So it's like the, the, as he's up on the tree, it's a sign that he's being rejected by God. He had rebelled against God. He had led his people to rebel against God. And then even after, after that, when they placed the big pile of stones on them, as we've seen a couple of times, right? Piles of stones are memorial places, teaching tools for coming generations in the promised land. Hey, this is going to be a reminder to them. This is what happens to people who reject Yahweh, who rebel against Yahweh. So we've seen that Israel is, is back to enjoying the blessing of God while the Canaanites are under the just curse of God for their sins. And that leads us then to our third heading. Potential of God's curse or blessing. Potential of God's curse or blessing. Right? So AI's been conquered. Things are back on track, so to speak, for the Israelites. So what do they do next? Right? Do they just kind of continue on with the conquest? Well, actually, verse 30, kind of maybe something a little surprising happens. uh, kind of like a, a, a break in the action, like a pause, like a shift takes place. In fact, Joshua hits the pause button on the conquest in verse 30 and actually leads the people about 20 miles north from Ai to a city called Shechem. You say, okay, why do I care about that? <laughs> well, it's actually kind of cool because here in in Here in Shechem, where Joshua leads the people now, in Joshua 8.30, that's the same place where, back in Genesis 12, verse 6, Abram was when God first gave Abram, who later would become Abraham, when he first gave him the, the promise of the land. It was right here in Shechem. And then, right, you have Abraham, those promises are repeated to Isaac, they're repeated then to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And Jacob had some dealings in 
um, in Shechem as well. He's promised the land. You can read about that in Genesis 28. And then um, in Genesis 33, it finds Jacob, after a long exile from the land, he's back there in the land in Shechem. So look at verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man is wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. So Joshua and the Israelites going to Shechem, it highlights the fact that God's promises are being fulfilled After hundreds of years, God is giving to Abraham and Jacob's descendants the land that he had promised to give them. So Joshua, again, Moses had, God through Moses has been telling them, you know, preparing them to do all this. But Joshua built an altar to worship the Lord. And when you read in Genesis about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's sojournings in the land, they, there were times, especially significant times in their relationship with God, when they would build an altar to the Lord. And building an altar to the Lord was an act of worship. It was, it was a place to offer sacrifices. And it was also a way of them, remember, they were strangers in the land. They didn't yet possess the land that had been promised to them. And it was a way of the, kind of them putting down roots, so to speak, and saying, God, I don't have this land yet, but I believe your word. I believe that one day you will give this land to my descendants. And so here Joshua and them are doing the exact same thing because God's promises are being fulfilled. The land is being given to them. So that's pretty cool. Again, it just reminds us of of God's faithfulness. And that's what our whole series through Joshua is. Uh, It's called Every Promise Fulfilled. God keeps his promises. And so here, in this area of Shechem, Joshua leads the people in an an official renewal of the covenant. Look at verse 32. And as I read these verses, notice, we've already seen it actually a little bit in 30 and 31, but notice the emphasis on the word of God, the the law of God, the law of Moses, right? It's all God's word. It's the the Pentateuch, right? It's the first five books of, of the Bible. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, right? So there's other, Rahab's not the only one who's, who's uh, uh, joining the Israelites. There's others who are recognizing, wow, the God of Israel is the true God. And, and we're going to worship him. We're going to follow him. I lost my place. Uh, is, verse 33, and all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges stood on a, a opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, right? He's copied it, now he's reading it to them. He read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. You kids who are in the service, hey, you're in good company, man. Back then the kids were in the service too. The word of God was being read to them. Again, another reference you might jot down in your Bibles or your bulletin or whatever. Back in Deuteronomy 27, 
God, through Moses, gave the people detailed instructions of this covenant ceremony that they were to do once they got in the land, in this area of the land. And here Joshua carries out those instructions to a T. Like I said, the, the, the law of God, the, God's word, plays a central role in, in his covenant with Israel. There's no surprise there. We see Joshua writes out a copy of the law, and the people then split into two groups. And if you would look at a map, uh, like a topographical map or whatever, Shechem is like in a valley. And between it are two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And so what they do is, as Joshua's going to read the law to them, they split up into two groups. Half of them go uh, on this side of the ark in front of Mount Gerizim, and the other half on the other side of the ark in front of Mount Ebal. And then with the people in those two groups, the entire law was read. And we won't take the time, the, the time for this this morning, but if you look back in Deuteronomy, I mean, it's sprinkled throughout the law, but if you especially look in Deuteronomy 27, Deuteronomy 28, you see the de- the You'll see the details of the law, um, how it goes into detail explaining God's blessings and God's cursing. How God is going to bless them for obedience, but curses will come upon them for disobedience. I mean, it goes into great detail. It's saying, hey, if you will keep God's commands, if you will obey the word of the Lord, your God, then God is going to bless you. He's going to let you stay in the land. He's going to bless your crops. He's going to bless your... The, your wombs, right? You're going to have lots of kids. I mean, he's, right? Other nations will be in awe of you. He's going to bless you. But if you don't obey him, you're not going to get his blessings. Matter of fact, you're going to get his judgment upon you. Your, your crops are going to fail. Your, 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 your family's going to suffer. You're actually, if, if you persist in it, you're going to be driven from the land, right? So the Mosaic Covenant, we, you need to understand this. Again, as we, as we study the Old Testament, or in other words, the Old Covenant, also called the Mosaic Covenant, you need to understand its nature, and you also need to understand we are not under it now. We are under the New Covenant, the New Testament. But the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, understand it was a conditional covenant between God and Israel. Conditional, like I just said. If Israel obeyed, they could stay in the land and God's going to bless their lives, even physically, and give them peace. But if they disobey, God will bring disaster upon them and they'll be driven from the land by their enemies. And so the setting itself, it's interesting if we could go there, right? The setting itself drives this point home. Remember how half are by this one mountain, half are by the other? Well, Mount Gerizim is green and lush, while Mount Ebal is rocky and barren. <laughs> so it's like the blessings are being read from the Mount Gerizim side. If you obey, God's going to bless you. Look at, look at life. Look at flourishing. Look at fruit. But if you disobey, it's going to lead to disaster. It's going to lead to cursing. It's going to lead to judgment. It's going to be dry and weary and barren. So this truth was being driven home for them. And think about it. Joshua and the Israelites have experienced a taste of this, haven't they? Right? I mean, that's what chapter 7 and chapter 8 are all about. Right? They, you know, they had disobeyed God. There was sin in the camp, and so they experienced God's cursing in the fact that they uh, were defeated by Ai in chapter 7. Now that that's purged and taken care of, they're once again experiencing God's blessing. 
So they're, they're well aware of this fact. <laughs> Again, as, under the Mosaic Covenant, as God's chosen people, the, the nation of Israel was to be a display of God's glory. Other nations were to look upon them and see God's blessings. Wow, look at how God is blessing his people, right? He's defeated all these other uh, wicked nations before them. He's, he's given them the land. They're just flourishing. And it was supposed to be really like an evangelistic tool, really, that other nations would come to Israel like the Queen of Sheba does with Solomon at the height of the, the kingdom and say, what is going on here? Your God must really be the true God, right? Other nations would come to Israel, worship Israel's God, and be blessed as well. And so the nation of Israel was to be God's instrument to show his love, mercy, and grace to the rest of the world. But as we trace Israel, they proved to be unfaithful in that, didn't they? I mean, here in Joshua, we're seeing you know, a lot of the blessings and a lot of the obeying. Joshua's a godly commander. He's leading the people to obey But if you know the history of Israel, it doesn't last, right? They end up disobeying. And they end up experiencing God's curses and being driven from the land. They're not able to keep their covenant with God. They've therefore failed to be a display of God's glory. They failed to be God's instrument to bless the nations. And this, I say all this because it points us to Christ and that's where we're going with the, the, the end of the sermon here. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the obedient son, right? There's even times when Israel is kind of referred to as, as God's son. But Jesus is the obedient son who, who is faithful to God the Father and remains faithful to God all his life. And as Philippians 2 says, Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And through his faithful sacrifice and resurrection, God is glorified and the nations are blessed and people are saved from their sins and reconciled to God. So I want you to just feel what it must have been like to be under the, the old covenant, right? There's this, they're reading these things and they're, they're, it's like the warnings and it's like, there's, yeah, there's the potential of blessing if we obey, but there's also, man, the, the real warnings of God's cursing if we disobey. And throughout their lives, they were not able to consistently obey. The problem wasn't God's covenant. The problem was their hearts, really, right? But Jesus did obey under God's law. And that that blew open the doors and paved the way for the new covenant that we get to live under. And that leads then to my last heading. Freedom from God's curse and securement. I looked it up, that is actually a word, securement of God's blessing, right? Freedom from God's curse and Christ securing God's blessing for us. And for this, I ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. We're we're wrapping this up, we're kind of starting to bring this in, We're we're on our descent, we haven't come in for a landing just yet. We're in the New Testament now, right? Galatians, a very important book where it talks a lot about the, you know, not being under the law anymore. (laughs) Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 13. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written... 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We know where that is. We just read it in Deuteronomy. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Oh, loved ones. Jesus has saved his people. How? By becoming a curse himself. Jesus, by bearing the sins of his people and dying on the cross, he was experiencing the judgment of God and he was even a picture of being rejected by God. That's why you see in, in, the, in the crucifixion accounts, the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the experts in the law, they're walking by looking at Jesus and they're wagging their heads, they're insulting him, saying, ha! He claimed to be the Messiah. Look at him now. He's being cursed by God. They knew their Old Testament. They knew that someone who hangs on a tree, a cross of wood, is a symbol of God's rejection. And so they conclude he's being rejected by God. And they were right. But they were wrong in the fact that they think he's being rejected by God because he's a sinner, because he's a fake, because he claimed to be the Messiah, he claimed to be God's son, and he's not. But they were wrong, right? Yes, he was being rejected by God the Father. Why? Not because of his sin, but because he was bearing the sins of his people. And he, he was under God's curse. He was, his rejection was real. That's why the sky turns black for three hours in the middle of the day. That's why he cries out, my God, my God. Not Father, but my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time ever, his fellowship with the Father was broken. He was forsaken by the Father and left to suffer and die alone. God, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to become sin. For us. But we know the good news. We sing about it today. We heard it read earlier. Christ's rejection did not last forever. Right? He was being rejected during those final three hours on the cross. And, and was, he died and was buried. But then on the third day he rose from the dead vindicated by the Father, proving that he wasn't an imposter. He was truly the Son of God. He had truly paid for the sins of his people, and that payment has been accepted. And now he was risen and exalted and glorified, and even then uh, exalted to his throne in heaven. And so now the, the good news of the gospel is that through faith in Christ, we can be freed from the curse of the law. Instead of experiencing the rejection of God, instead of experiencing eternal punishment under his just wrath, we can be forgiven, we can be adopted into his family. (laughs) Rather than being condemned as we deserve, we can be made right with God. We can be accepted by God through Jesus Christ. We can be assured of being with God forever in heaven. And so if you're a believer today, you have the good news of knowing I will never face God's wrath. I will never be rejected by God. There's no more fear of that. 
When I stand before God, he's going to welcome me into his presence, not because I deserve it, but because of Christ. Because he has paid for all of my sins. Freedom from God's curse. And as I say that, I'm, I'm aware that there are likely people here today who are still under the wrath of God. Right? Ultimately, you experience it if you die that way. That's when you're cast into hell. But the Bible says by nature we are all sinners. By nature we are all separated from God because of our sin and rebellion. And we're all headed for eternal judgment. And the Bible also makes very clear the lie that so many believe. That none of us can make ourselves right with God on our own. I mean for, for generations people have tried to, oh if I just you know, uh, do enough things, if I just you know, punish myself maybe I can... Make myself right with God. No, we cannot. God says the only way we can be made right with God is, is through Christ, through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. God is gracious. He's merciful. He has provided his son. He has provided a savior. And God says for all who turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone, their sins will be forgiven. Their sins will be washed away. Their the wrath of God will have been satisfied because Christ will have borne it in their place. And so I ask you today, would any of you want to leave this place and remain under the curse of God? I mean, who would want to do that? Who would want to, to leave and still not be right with God, their creator? And who would want to risk dying that way? Because then it'll be too late to be made right with him. And so I, again, I just follow in the pattern of, of, of scripture here. And I urge you to forsake your sin and cry out to God for his mercy. Turn from trusting in anything else, in your good works or your upbringing. Or your, turn from that and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as payment for your sins. And the Bible promises that everyone who by faith embraces Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved. You'll be reconciled to God. All of your sins will be paid for and you'll never face the curse of God's wrath. And so the choice is before you. God's blessing of salvation through Christ or God's curse of eternal judgment for my sins what what a stark contrast right eternal life or eternal punishment i pray that god will enable everyone under the sound of my voice to choose life choose life run to christ and now as we as we bring it in onto the runway Again, I just want to highlight what a joy it is to live in the, under the new covenant. As believers under the new covenant established by Christ, we no longer live with the threat of God's wrath hanging over our heads. We know that the wrath we deserve has been borne by Christ. And so now, we're no longer under the curse. And then, conversely, on the other side of the coin of the good news, is we enjoy God's blessings 
Now we enjoy every spiritual blessing in Christ, Ephesians 1.3 says. And it's not, it's not the health and wealth gospel. It's not the promise that God is going to make you rich and, and, and famous and all that stuff. No, it's every spiritual blessing in Christ. Forgive, think about Ephesians 1. Forgiveness of sins, freedom from bondage to sin. In other words, redemption. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Adoption into God's family like we already saw in Galatians. Promise of an eternal inheritance of resurrection and life with God forever in his perfect eternal kingdom. I mean, think what peace we have, loved ones. We no longer live under this constant threat of judgment. We no longer live under this tyranny of trying to stay in God's blessing. Why? Because Christ has lived and died in our place. Christ has taken our judgment and he has secured our blessing. The inheritance of resurrection, the inheritance of reigning over the new heaven and the new earth belongs to Christ ultimately. But in his grace and mercy, he has shared it with us. We are co-heirs with Christ. What freedom that is. And that's what Galatians 3 is getting at as well. He's freed us from the curse of the law. He's freed us from trying to earn God's favor and secure his blessing. It's all been paid for by Jesus. And we just get to revel in it and enjoy it. And you say, well, yeah, that is good news. But what about obedience, right? Are you saying obedience is not important? What does Paul say in Romans 6? By no means am I saying that, oh, wait a minute. Ooh, that came out wrong. Obedience is important. What Paul says is, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means, right? God forbid. Grace is not a license to sin. No, we want to glorify God. We want to bring him glory. And we should, we should want to obey God. Please understand this. Why should we obey God? Well, we should want to obey God because now we've, we love him. Now we've been given new hearts. We want to glorify him. And... There are natural consequences to sin, right? There is still the principle of we reap what we sow. Our sin will be met now, if we're a believer, right? Our sin will be met with not God's wrath, not God's curse, but it will be met with his fatherly discipline, okay? It's loving discipline. And so, yeah, there, there may, and some discipline is hard, right? It's not pleasant at the time, Hebrews says. But know that if you, not if, when we sin as a believer, right? And, and when we face God's discipline, it's always in love. God only has love for his children. We don't need to fear his wrath. We don't need to fear his rejection. This is a loving father saying, don't go that way. That, that just leads to a lot more pain, a lot more hurt. Why are you doing that? <laughs> Come back. Come back to the right path. Come back into the loving fellowship of, of me, God the Father, and, and God's people. His discipline may be painful, but it is given in love and it's to bring us to repentance getting us back on the right track so we can enjoy all the blessings that are already ours in Christ. Do you see the difference? They're already ours in Christ. We just need to enjoy them. (laughs) We just need to abide in them. But sometimes we wander away. 
we must guard against a mindset of earning God's blessings through our obedience. We don't do that. Christ has earned it all. Again, there are natural consequences to our actions, but let us avoid a works-based approach to our relationship with God. He has already blessed us fully in Christ. Through our obedience, we enjoy the fullness of the blessings of our relationship with Christ. May God then be glorified as we daily relish in our relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the work of Christ. What, how amazing is the gospel that here he was the only one who obeyed you fully all his life, even to the point of, of dying in the place of his people. And yet simultaneously, as he's securing our blessings, and he's also bearing our punishment. And we think of your great love that sent him and, and the, the love and, and how, um, what's the right word here, painful? It must have been for you to forsake your own son. But you did it to demonstrate your great love for sinners like us. And so we praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your completed work of salvation. We praise you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Thank you for the glory of the new covenant. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. That we are new creations and that you, you have given us new hearts that want to obey you. And you lead us down paths of obedience and righteousness. And that our blessings are secure in Christ. Oh, may you please continue to show your grace and, and, and um, regenerating power to save any here today who are still uh, separated from you. Show them their sin and show them the Savior that you've provided in Christ Jesus. That's in his name we pray, amen. If I could have the men come forward, please, who are gonna uh, serve us today with the Lord's Supper. We, today we get to um, enjoy this ordinance that Christ has given to his church to give us a tangible means of, 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 of reminder of what we've just been talking about. How the, the bread and, and the cup symbolize the finished work of Christ, right? He, it's, his work is finished. He's, we're not re-sacrificing Christ today. He has no more suffering to do. <laughs> Jesus has paid it all. But the bread and the cup point us back to his suffering and remind us that he did bear God's wrath, the wrath we deserve, and that we are now in Christ forgiven and adopted and in God's family and get to, we have a, a wonderful inheritance that's being kept for us. So I pray that you will be blessed and encouraged as you take the, the Lord's Supper today. It is a good time to examine our hearts um, you know, confess any, any known sin, repent of that by God's enabling, but just also be, be blessed and be encouraged that every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ Jesus. And one final word of instruction, if, if today if you don't know Christ as your Savior, the Bible makes it very clear that uh, to not take the bread and the cup. It is only for believers. If you're a believer today, you publicly identified with Christ, then by all means take and and enjoy. If you're not, please just let it pass by. We won't embarrass you. Um, 
but I would just ask you to, to pray and consider what we've talked about today from God's word.